0: Revelation chapter 6, and we'll begin simply by reading our passage of interest this evening. Revelation 6, and we'll just jump right into the story and then we'll work our way back to it. Beginning in verse 9. When He, that is Christ, when He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O oh, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So it was very late in his ministry that Jesus really, in earnest, began preaching about what was coming later, about the end times. We have Matthew 24, Matthew 25, Luke 21, and he gives some details, but not a lot. Then the night Jesus was betrayed, Jesus gave his disciples a very basic understanding of the coming end times. He said in John 14, 1 through 3, and this is something a child can understand, "'Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me.'" In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And so, very simple understanding. Jesus didn't try to hammer the disciples with a full eschatology, a full end-time study. After Jesus died, after he rose from the grave, after he ascended into heaven, it still wasn't time for the church of Jesus Christ to receive a a fuller revelation. The church devoted itself to the gospel, to preaching and teaching, to evangelism, to prayer, to growing in numbers and in scope around the known world. And that's what needed to happen. A few decades later, Emperor Nero, in power, persecuted the church, but his persecution was mainly around Rome itself, but then it would expand. A decade after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, Emperor Domitian came to power. He began a reign of terror within his own ranks and then against Christianity, not just around Rome, but in the entire Roman world now. And now the last living apostle, the author of Revelation... John was banished by Domitian to the island of Patmos right near the end of Domitian's reign, right at the end. And it was at this time that John received, Revelation 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, compared to the information that the church had prior to this book, to the the final chapter of our Bible, uh, Revelation is like the doctrinal the, the doctoral, rather, dissertation of eschatology. This is big stuff. This is the grand finale of the Bible. This is what makes the book of Joel and much of Isaiah and Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 and Luke 21, it all makes sense now because Revelation is the key that unlocks all of it. Revelation was written to instruct and to encourage the persecuted church, encouraging them to be faithful because Christ is coming back And it instructs us to live for God in the midst of trouble, to live as if the kingdom could come tomorrow. There's very much an urgency to the book of Revelation. And it is a book of prophecy. It starts with the introduction in chapter 1, speaking of the things that you have seen, and then the things which must take place There's a brief little section in chapters 2 and 3, which is specific instruction to seven historic churches in John's day, which has great application for us. But from then on, chapter 4 to all the way to the end is future. God is revealing what must soon come at the end of all things as his redemptive plan for Israel and for the nations is consummated. There are some believers today and, and, and godly men and scholars who believe that the entire book of Revelation is actually about what happened in AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem. The problem is the book opens saying, we're talking about the things that must soon take place. And this was written 25 years later. And so we, we have to deal with that issue The book is Future. And God is demonstrating what he declared about himself in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. He said, remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And how does he prove he's God? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I shall accomplish all my purpose. Remember when God predicts the future, it's not just that he's really good at figuring out things that are going to happen. It's because he's going to make those things happen. That's how he predicts the future. The book of Revelation is is clearly the end product of God's giving his word to the earth. There is no more needed written revelation for us because it ties up all of the loose ends from all the way back in Genesis. Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. But what happens in chapter three? We have sin And for the next over 1,000 chapters of the Bible, we have sin, 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 sin. Sin has polluted his creation. But Revelation 21 ties up that loose end. We have a new heaven and a new earth that is sinless. Genesis 1, 27 and 28, God created mankind to rule the earth as his vice-regent over all of creation. But again, sin corrupts man and he's no longer qualified But in Revelation 22, mankind is ruling the earth alongside Jesus Christ, fully qualified once again. In the book of Genesis, the tree of life is at the center of the Garden of Eden. But mankind lost access to eternal life through sin. But in Revelation 22, the tree of life is the central focus of New Jerusalem. You will see the tree of life. Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall of mankind into sin, the curse of God leading to death. But Revelation 22, 3 says there is no longer any curse. Death has been defeated. So the book of Revelation ties up all the loose ends that are begun in Genesis. And if you're curious as to what the theme and the point of the book of Revelation might be, it is Revelation 1, verse 7 behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so amen in other words the point of the book of revelation is christ is returning you'd better be on the right side that's the point of the book now in chapter 6 we see the beginning of the great tribulation the the time prophesied in daniel chapter 9 in which a world ruler would emerge known in the New Testament as the Antichrist. The church has been taken to heaven in the rapture resurrection event as described in 1 Thessalonians 4, and that's because the church will not endure the wrath of God on earth. We won't be here. Daniel 9.27 says the Antichrist would make a covenant of peace, including a covenant of peace with a reformed nation of Israel. Antichrist world domination won't be a warlike domination, it'll be diplomatic, it'll be peaceful. Many will believe that he is the Messiah, many will believe that he is the one who will finally bring peace to the earth. And in Revelation 6, shows the opening of the great scroll, which is the title deed to the earth, and it can only be opened by the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, because He alone has kingly rights of ownership over the world. And this scroll, as he opens it, has seven seals. And these seals are representative of judgments of God. The first seal, Revelation 6, verse 2. And I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, and the crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. This is Antichrist. He looks like Messiah. He's on a white horse. He, probably very symbolic of his imitation of the Savior. He has a bow, but he doesn't have arrows. He's, he has power, but he's conquering in peace with diplomacy. The second seal likely begins the second half of the seven-year tribulation since Daniel chapter 9 says the Antichrist will break covenant at that point. And now we have the second seal, a great world war. The third seal comes. The third seal is opened. We have the judgment of great famine on the earth, great food shortages. And then you have the fourth seal, This is the judgment of great death by war, by famine, by disease, by a a resurgence of attacks by wild animals on the earth. What is that? That's a reversal of the blessing that God gave in Genesis 9 verse 2 where the animal kingdom was to now fear humanity. Now that's removed and there's no more fear. And in Bakersfield, California, you're going to have lions and tigers and bears, oh my, because they will no longer be afraid of you why would we call that a great death because it is such that 25 percent of the human population will be killed today that would be two billion people but during this time we know from revelation seven fourteen that darren read a moment ago that after the rapture of the church many 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 will be coming to faith in christ And how is that possible? People have said, well, how can people come to faith if the church isn't here? There's going to be Bibles everywhere. And when things like hundred pound hailstones start falling from the sky, I think we're going to be looking for Bibles. And what's going to happen? Well, it's going to be the time that Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And I've argued in the past that the greatest evangelistic push in all of history will be during the Great Tribulation. That's the time when every tongue and every tribe, every nation will hear the gospel. So many of these new believers will be martyred for their faith. It will literally be illegal to be a Christian on earth with the penalty being death. And if you think that sounds far-fetched, that's the case in several Muslim countries now. In Pakistan it will cost you your life to speak openly against Islam and to speak for Christ. Well that brings us to the fifth seal. The first four seals we were on earth but now the scene shifts momentarily back to heaven. The fifth seal are these tribulation saints. Those who have come to faith in Christ after the church has been raptured taken up to heaven They have been, as the text says, slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. There's no room for Christians on earth now, and they'll be dying quickly. And these saints are crying out for retribution, for the justice of God to prevail. By the way, it shows us that those in heaven have an awareness of what's happening on earth. And why shouldn't we? We're part of the future plan. The earth is God's future plan. The the plan is not we go to heaven and that's the end of all things. The plan is we go to heaven and wait for the coming end of all things, which happens on the earth. But these heavenly martyrs, I, I think, can be so instructive for us because they're doing the very thing that is the theme of our series, Strength in the Desert. They're waiting on the Lord. Now we've seen the examples of Israel, of Paul and Silas, of Noah's wife, of Asaph, of Jeremiah, of Abigail, of Obadiah, of Anna, of Joseph, of Habakkuk. But now we have a a unique example before us about how to wait on the Lord and what's so valuable to us about these future martyrs in heaven. And by the way, we can speculate that what they're doing is the same activity that saints now are doing before God. But what's so valuable to us about using these future martyrs as an example is that we have confidence that their example on how to wait for the Lord is perfect. Because they've seen the Lord face to face. Scripture tells us that this has completed their sanctification. They've been made Christ like, they no longer struggle with with sin and struggle against their own flesh. 1 John 3, 2 says we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so I've included these saints in heaven as an example for us on how to wait on the Lord in having strength in the desert because we don't have to evaluate whether they're a good example or not. They are sinless. They have been made like Christ. And so whatever they do is exactly the right thing to do. They're still waiting, but they're just really, really good at it now. They're very skilled. And so to that end, very simply this evening, I want to give you seven examples given by the martyrs in heaven on how to wait on the Lord. Seven examples given by the martyrs in heaven on how to wait on the Lord. For them, waiting isn't passive, it isn't docile, it isn't lifeless, it is active, it's intensive, it's a focused activity. It's not something that they do seated. It's something that they do standing before God. First example, very simply, they persevered. They persevered. We see these martyred saints under the altar in the heavenly temple and throne room. There's no reason to make that altar symbolic since God isn't limited on how big an altar can be. He's allowed to make altars as big as He wants but whether or not they're under a literal altar or not, the, the picture that we get is that of sacrifice, of, of blood. And these saints are, are pictured very much as identifying with Christ in His sacrifice. They've done what the Apostle Paul spoke of in Colossians 1.24, that he was rejoicing in the suffering for the gospel because he was, quote, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. It's not that... The suffering of Christ on the cross lacked something it's that it includes the larger scope the larger picture of the church of Jesus Christ also suffering his church would suffer since he so identifies himself with his people then our suffering becomes his suffering and these saints had suffered verse 9 says they were slain for the word of God they were faithful unto death In Revelation 2, the church at Smyrna was commended for their faithfulness. They they were steadfast in the midst of suffering, and they were exhorted by Christ, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. During the Great Tribulation, which was pouring Christian martyrs into heaven at an unprecedented rate, Antichrist, who is called in Revelation 13 the beast, in verse 7 of Revelation 13 it says he was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them and at the end of verse 10 here is the call for the endurance and the faith of the saints in other words during this time how do you know who the real Christians are it's the ones who are willing to die for their faith that's who the real ones are and these in heaven are those who endured who persevered who were slain for the true gospel and for their open witness of faith in Christ They, they weren't undercover christians they weren't secret believers in the midst of antichrist demanding allegiance and worship to himself the true believers did not renounce the faith and in fact they were vocal witnesses of christ and and this is how the, the the faith that we love is being spread throughout the world so quickly during this time because they weren't quiet about it and this is the requirement of all who claim to be in christ The great paradox of our faith is that God alone secures and keeps our salvation, yet he requires perseverance of us. He alone keeps our salvation. We see this multiple times in scripture. Jesus said in John 10, beginning in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's God's work. Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's God's work. Jude 24, we read this morning, says, it is God who keeps you from stumbling and will present you blameless before the presence of his glory. That's God's work. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4 says, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. That's God's work. And so your security and salvation is solely the work of God. And yet the calls to us to persevere in the faith, these calls in the New Testament are numerous. 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. First Peter 1.7 speaks of the tested genuineness of your faith. Hebrews 3.14 challenges us, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And of course, Philippians 2.12 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, not gain your salvation with fear and trembling, but demonstrate, show that you're saved. I think this is very, very useful to us in the time of waiting because it reminds me to be less concerned For the things I'm waiting for and to be more concerned with the manner in which I'm walking before the Lord. To walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And I think if we do that, that helps put the things you're waiting for in proper perspective. Let me me put it this way. Your focus ought to be not, not so much what is it that I'm waiting for, but how am I waiting? How am I being faithful to the Lord while I wait? That's the focus. They persevered. The second example to us, they prayed. They prayed. Now, you might think of the word prayed in quotation marks because prayer has the implication of communicating with God from a distance. But these saints are in the literal presence of Almighty God. but, But I think prayer is a useful word because it speaks of a request of God. Our house is kind of echoey. We have hard floors and high ceilings. And so as a result, you literally can almost have a conversation from one end of our house to the other. It's very useful at dinner time. You don't have to go looking for everybody. You can just raise your voice a little bit and say, it's it's dinner time, and everybody can hear you. But we would never stand face to face right next to somebody I would never go up to my wife a foot away from her in the kitchen and yell, please, can I have dinner? I'm so hungry. Please, could you give me something to eat? We would never do that. If she's right there, I'm just going to speak to her. But here's the astounding thing about these saints in heaven. Uh, Maybe you've prayed in desperation at the top of your lungs. I know I have. Sometimes you sense the need to pray with all you have, including with volume, because you might have that sense that God feels a billion miles away and I'm going to raise my voice to try to reach Him. But these saints, in the actual presence of God, are not using their inside voice. They're yelling with a loud voice their request. There's fervor, there's focus, there's a force behind these prayers. Their prayers aren't passive, they're not puny, they're not pint-sized They are pursuing God in prayer with all of their might, with all of their strength. And you might say, well, they're at the throne of grace. Of course they're confident in prayer. Of course they're raising their voice to the Lord. But so are you. You know the verse, Hebrews 4.16 says that, let us then with confidence draw near to what? The throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, your prayers while you're waiting on the Lord, they are to be aggressive. They are to be audacious. They are to be adamant, not passive. You go before the Lord with a loud voice if need be. The saints in heaven provide a third example for us. They proclaimed, they proclaimed. I think it's significant that they address God with both a theological and a doxological title, meaning the title which speaks accurately of God's character and the title which gives him glory and honor, which he so richly deserves. They address him as, O Sovereign Lord. The, The sovereignty of God speaks of his total power, his total control, his total influence over everything. It also speaks theologically that they now have a perfected understanding that God is completely in domination and dominion over all details, that he's totally in control, and yet they still make a request. How is it that they can stand before God and still make a request? Because they proclaim who he is. He's a sovereign Lord. And very far from their understanding God is sovereign turning them into passive and docile people it seems to vitalize and vivify their their prayers and bring them life and assertiveness they address god with this kingly title of sovereign lord now the english word lord which is used hundreds of times in the new testament almost every time over 700 times it translates the the very common greek word kurios And it's a very general word, it can refer to everything from your boss, to a governor, to a king, to God himself. It's used in a a plethora of different ways. But the saints in heaven, as transcribed by the Apostle John, they don't use kurios, they use a much less commonly used word, despotes, Despot only used 10 times and it means master lord ruler it has a very specific meaning that that speaks of being an absolute ruler you might use kurios to say you're a boss and you're a boss and you're a boss but when you say despotes you're the only boss there is no other it speaks of god as creator speaks of god as fully brought forth in the person of christ The other times the New Testament uses this term, you get the sense of the gravity of the title. God is creator, for example. Acts 4.24, the believers in Jerusalem pray, Sovereign Lord, same word, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea. It's big, it's lofty, it is unique, it is solely about God and nobody else. Same word is used as of God is fully represented in the person of Christ. Jude 24 says, quote, our only master, same word, and Lord is Jesus Christ. And in that particular verse, Jesus gets despates and curios just to make sure we know who he is. But I want you to notice something. The title, Sovereign Lord, does not focus on what God can do for me. It's a lofty and grand proclamation that God is not obligated to do my will. God is not manipulated. God is not my servant. He is sovereign. He is the one who determines and controls all things. He is the one who determines the end from the beginning, as Isaiah 46 says. The one who does as he wishes with mankind. And their prayers, beginning here with the proclamation of truth about God. These prayers are God-focused. They're God-exalting. And continuing the God-exalting theme, there's a fourth example that these saints give us. They praised. They praised. They're still focused on God's majesty. They're not focused on their request. And they issue praise to God by declaring His attributes. They call God holy and true. Holy and true. This is very important because these martyrs ultimately were rejected, persecuted, and murdered because of their testimonies about God's holiness and about God's truth. His holiness is the fact that He alone is God, that He's unique, He's distinct, He's pure, He's righteous. All that God is makes Him holy. Don't call holiness one of the attributes of God. All of the attributes of God put together make Him holy. He's unique. So they were martyred because they stood on the fact that God is is God alone. They were also martyred because of their testimony that God is true. That He alone is the standard of righteousness and justice. He alone is the giver of spiritual truth. He alone is the God whose ways are always correct. He alone is the God who is always right. And they praise God for these glorious attributes and and their prayers, I, I just love this, they're just naturally laced with the inclination to declare God's qualities. We might call this declarative worship because God is glorified simply by them stating these things out loud and saying that they're true. But their praise shows something else besides just their natural inclination to offer glory to God. It shows that first and foremost, they are not concerned with their requests. They are first and foremost concerned with God's reputation. That's something that is so neglected in the church of Jesus Christ. The thought of the fame of God, the glory of God, the reputation of God. We've turned God into a Santa Claus that's just all about meeting my needs. This is not where they are going here. They, they are concerned for God's reputation. Their request for vindication is not for them. Why do we know this? Where are they? In heaven. They're fine. They're not saying, God, get me out of this mess. They're already out of the mess. Their request is for God's sake. The reputation of God's justice is at stake because if he doesn't render recompense to the wicked, then God is unjust. And they're appealing for divine justice, not for personal vengeance, but as perfected saints, they are fiercely loyal to the fame and the reputation of the only holy and true God. I want you to notice something here, by the way. Going to heaven didn't mean just a constant feeling of flowers, cupcakes, and sunshine. Yes, they're at perfect peace. Yes, they are perfectly protected and safe. Yes, their struggle is over. But notice what else is perfected. Their righteous indignation against evil is perfected. Their concern for God's glory is passionate and righteous. And the focal point of their prayer is God do that which will shine the spotlight of brilliance and fame and triumph and glory and vindication and wonder all on you. And I would say that is a spectacular prayer to pray while you wait. Oh God May my waiting, may your wisdom, may whatever solution you choose to bring display your magnificence, might that be my primary concern. That's a terrific prayer to pray. Listen, praising God while you wait is not just a tool which helps you feel better. That is a byproduct, but that's not the point. It reflects a disciplined concern for the true priority that your situation, whatever it is you're waiting on, would serve to magnify the greatness of God. That's the concern. They show us a fifth example. They persisted. They persisted. They cried out in prayer, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They desired righteous vindication for the sake of God's glory And because they had taken a firm stand for Christ. I mentioned a moment ago the country of Pakistan. It's one of the most conservatively Muslim countries on earth. What I mean by conservative, that's not a good thing in this case. It means that their judicial and government system is based on Islam and that speaking against Islam can carry and has dozens of times carried the death penalty. Christians continue to be imprisoned or executed in Pakistan if they speak against Islam in any way, yet, of course, Islam is a quote unquote peaceful religion, right? But every believer who is persecuted. Every believer who is martyred, every believer who has suffered for his faith will be vindicated. The nation will be judged. The executioner will be judged. The judges will be judged. All will stand before Christ when the heavens and the earth have melted away, and all that's left for that moment, according to Revelation 20, is the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. The books will be opened, and every unrighteous deed, every single one, will be accounted for. God will vindicate. And so to this end, the saints of heaven persist in prayer. They join the psalmists who frequently did the same. The writer of Psalm 94 says in verse 3, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? How long will they celebrate? And here's the prayer of Psalm 94. Listen, the psalms are not always just all about sunshine and happiness. Here's the prayer. O Lord, God of vengeance. O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. That is an imprecatory prayer on a massive scale. The psalmist issues charges against the wicked. He says they pour out arrogant words. They crush God's people. They kill the widow and the sojourner. They murder the fatherless. And he says that these arrogant people are saying something. The Lord doesn't see. He's not going to see what we do. And the psalmist warns the wicked. He says, do you think that the God who made ears won't hear? Do you think that the God who made eyes won't see? And he closes with this statement of faith. In verse 23, he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Those aren't prayers you hear very often in church, are they? But here's what's astonishing to me. The coming justice and vindication of God's holiness is going to happen. This is a foregone conclusion from Scripture. All who have rebelled against God will feel the hand of his fury. And yet the very saints in heaven persist and persist and persist in asking how long? But their persistence in the light of the certainty of God's coming judgment, that's not even the most astonishing thing. Do you remember where they are? they're in heaven where there's endless beauty and delights and pleasure in God why aren't they just frolicking through the meadows and enjoying themselves and seeing the sights I think the reason is pretty clear from the text here they're serving their purpose the martyrs of God serve God by providing the prayers for justice which he will answer Prayers which he will most assuredly see to. And they will find their greatest purpose in heaven in persistent prayer. Listen, heaven is not the place where you stop praying. Heaven is the place where you just get really good at it. When they arrived in heaven, heaven wasn't some divine spa where weird music is playing and you're handed a heavenly cucumber to put on your eyes and some angel gives you an eternal facial that goes on for 10,000 years. I know ladies, you're saying that sounds like heaven to me. But they entered heaven to do spiritual battle. They entered heaven to appeal to God to vindicate his name. And how is it that being martyred for your faith would bring glory to God because it just adds to the ranks all of those who are crying out for God to vindicate his holiness? Whatever it is you're waiting for, that thing which you're waiting on the Lord, the example of these saints is clear. Let it drive you to the great purpose of prayer and communion and persistence yes cry out to god for an answer and for relief yes cry out to god for his justice and for righteousness but remember the very act of persistence the very act of prayer isn't just a means to the answer it's your goal so when you're on your knees and when you're weeping about that thing that you're waiting for remember The the purpose of this trial isn't to get to the end of it. The purpose is happening right now It is to get you to that point, to make you persistent. And you would never be that way without this trial. You would never be that way without having to wait on the Lord. To be persistent, don't just do it for the sake of a result. Be persistent for the sake of persistence itself. Persistence in prayer. Let me give you a sixth example they give us. They prepared. They prepared. What was it they were preparing for or being prepared for? We'll have to work our way toward that. The text says they were given a white robe. Now, very often commentators will jump to a conclusion that this is symbolic. There's nothing in the text to indicate that this is a symbol. It's not impossible. If it's not impossible, then it's probably not a symbol. There are symbols in the Bible that are clearly symbolic because they're impossible. Isaiah forty four twenty three. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest. I've never heard a mountain sing. I've never heard a tree sing. That's a symbol. But spirits in heaven without any substance couldn't wear robes. These are people. The eminent legendary end-time scholar, Dr. John Walvoord, he wrote this, The fact that they will be given robes supports the concept that when believers die, they are given temporary bodies in heaven, which are later replaced by resurrection bodies at the time of resurrection. And so, real white robes, this is a completely plausible explanation. Which, by the way, doesn't mean that white is the only color in heaven. It's just a really important color, in the book of Revelation, The the symbolism, while it is a real robe, the symbolism of the white garment is extremely important in Revelation. Revelation 3, the Lord Jesus himself calls true believers those who will, quote, walk with me in white. In the same chapter, those who are false converts, those who are pretenders, Jesus calls to them to procure, quote, white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And, Chapter 4, the 24 elders representing the entire church are seen as clothed in white garments. Chapter 7, saints from every tribe and people and language are depicted standing before the throne of God, before the Lamb of God, quote, clothed in white robes. All believers in Christ, according to chapter 2, verse 17, will receive a white stone upon which is written a new name given to you by God himself. Again, the color white. Jesus is depicted as having hair that is white, like white wool, not the gray hair of an old man, but the white snowy hair of one who is perfect and holy and pure. When Christ is preparing to return to earth to conquer and to destroy the living rebels on earth, Revelation 19.11 says, "...then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse." And you have the connection here. "...the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war." And when he judges the unbelievers of all the ages, Revelation 20 says that Christ will be seated on what color throne? A great white throne. In the book of Revelation, almost without exception, white refers to spiritual cleanness, to perfection, and to righteousness. And so what about these white robes that the martyrs are given? Revelation 7 answers this question. One of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Meaning they are wearing white robes signifying that they have been made righteous. They have been made pure. They have been made perfect. They have been made able to stand before the almighty glorious presence of holy God himself. They are able to do what the Bible says can't be done, and that is to see God and live because they are righteous. So why would we say that the receiving of white robes, the robes of righteousness, the apparel of the the redeemed is preparation Well, Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6, says this. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come, and his bride, that's us, his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her, granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That through the righteousness of Christ. The good things that you did did not procure your salvation, but they are counted towards your reward. Why? Because you're counted as righteous already. So, because the white robes of righteousness is also now a a uniform. Now we see the idea of preparation. Now, when I say uniform, what do I mean by that? Well, Revelation 19:14 speaks of the same people. This is us. This is these are the saints. And the armies of heaven, the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Time after time after time, the book of Revelation says the saints are dressed in white. 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 The the armies of heaven dressed in white. Who are the armies of heaven? It is the saints. The robes of righteousness Is also the uniform of the grand invading army of God, the holy resurrected saints of the ages who will accompany Christ back to earth. Now, the martyrs of heaven at the point of Revelation 6 have not yet received their full resurrection bodies, but they will shortly. And the giving of white robes says to them, Listen, it says here, put on the uniform. For the soon and coming day when your prayers for vindication will be answered. In other words, put this on, we're leaving soon. How can you prepare for God's answer for His ultimate plan to be worked out? Well, by putting on the uniform of the redeemed. By praising God that you too have been given the white robes of righteousness, that in Christ you've been credited with the righteousness of Jesus Himself. Also, by putting on the Christian's battle uniform, we're given the battle uniform in Scripture the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helm of the salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and that final piece of the uniform, the all encompassing piece that holds it all together, according to Ephesians 6 praying at all times. How do you prepare to wait? Well, dress for it, dress for the wait. Thank God for his righteousness. Be prepared in righteousness and wear the Christian's battle uniform. Let me give you one more example that the martyrs in heaven have for us back in Revelation 6. The seventh example is they postponed. They postponed. Verse 11 they were each given the white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. They're told to rest a little longer. It's just a word that means to, literally, it means to relax, abide, wait, remain. And they're told until the number of their fellow servants. They're informed that the tribulation is not over. Others must be martyred before God's judgment on the wicked and deliverance of the righteous occurs at the second coming. And if you know your New Testament, there's probably a passage that's coming to your mind very reminiscent to us, and it's very instructive to us, the the patience, the spiritual vigilance that's commanded in 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 8, where Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, here it is, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered, here's the phrase again, for a little while, a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I I think it's so helpful, and we've we've emphasized this many times in this series, to remember that your life, your particular trial, your particular predicament, isn't just about you it's part of a bigger plan it's part of the bigger redemptive plan of God you're you're not living in an independent universe known as your life you're in the midst of God's overarching kingdom plan some of that plan has already happened but the consummation of the kingdom has yet to be fulfilled and we're in this story we're in on it we're in the middle of it and so these saints here in heaven they postpone there's no indication that they're told to stop praying, but they're they're to pray in restful waiting. There's no mystery to what the end of your story is. The Bible already tells you. Revelation 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. That is New Jerusalem, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. If you're wondering what the ending to all your trials will be, that's it. It's right there. But the saints in heaven... Are waiting, they're postponing, and we can, by faith and in confidence, postpone as well. We can wait. How long? Well, the instructions given to the saints were to wait. The Greek is literally a small time, a little bit of time. Remember when you were a kid and an hour seemed like eternity? and your parents said it's time for dessert in 15 minutes and you thought you were going to die if it was going to not ever if it wasn't ever going to come and now when you're grown having an hour all to yourself just feels like a luxury I mean I, I there are very rare times where any of us have an hour where we're just all by ourselves and you kind of look around and go what am I going to do and you get very excited about this so what do we do take the small time Wait for a little while. And by the way, that might be, your, might be your whole life. But take the small time and live in the lap of luxury of the blessing and the delight of knowing the Lord because having that small time to yourself is, is glorious. When our kids were little, if they were going to have to endure a long wait or a long ride in the car, we always made sure that they had things that would pass the time for them, books or games or, or toys and so forth. We have the same thing. We have so much to make the weight bearable and to make it enjoyable. We have the word of God to instruct us. We have the the people of God to love and to love us. We have the songs of our faith to sing. When was the last time you sang 25 hymns in a row? We have our families to surround us. We have purpose. What's our purpose? To live lives that demonstrate the gospel to the world. We have a perfect hope in the future. of heaven are are such an encouragement to us. Such an encouragement. Now, someone might say, somebody actually told me this, well, that's easy for them. They're in heaven. And they're, they're perfected. I'm not either of those things. I'm not in heaven and I'm not perfected. Well, let me encourage you. You know what we could nickname this prayer of the saints? We could nickname it the Lord's Prayer of Heaven. Now, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, It's been famously nicknamed the Lord's Prayer, although it's more accurate to call it the Disciples' Prayer. But when he taught them to pray, he simply taught them essentially what the martyrs in Revelation 6 are praying. The martyrs prayed, O Sovereign Lord, to indicate that he's fully in charge. He totally has all the power. He's going to make everything okay. He is fully their keeper, their protector, their helper. What did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father who is in heaven. You have a father who is in heaven who is literally running the universe. And he said, you can call me dad. That's amazing. The martyrs prayed holy and true in praise and adoration of God, keeping their focus on him. Jesus taught us to pray hallowed or holy be your name the martyrs prayed, How long until your plan is consummated, until you've inflicted judgment on your enemies? Jesus taught us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. In other words, bring the armies of earth, of heaven to earth, consummate your kingdom. The martyrs prepared. They were given white robes of completed righteousness in Christ. Jesus taught us to pray for righteousness and purity of action. He said, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That we're to pursue righteousness. And the martyrs postponed full satisfaction for a time. They postponed. Jesus taught us to pray, give us Today, this day, our daily bread. In other words, the kingdom hasn't come yet, but for today, would you provide for me while we wait? Give us all we need for this moment. So my contention is that the saints in heaven provide a glorious example on how to wait on the Lord. But it's not an impossible example. It is one that we can follow now. And so I encourage you to do that. Our Father, we thank you for a very clear text that's very exciting to us to get to peek into the halls of heaven and to see what's going on there and to see the, the glories of those who are praising you and praising your magnificence. How we honor you, Lord, by living now as if that future is a reality and it is a reality. And so, Lord, I I ask you on behalf of those who are listening, who are waiting right now, waiting for a restored relationship, waiting for health issues to maybe be cleared up or maybe not, waiting for pain to stop, waiting for depression to lift, waiting for anxiety to lift, whatever it is that they're waiting for, Lord, I pray that they would have the courage and the assertiveness and the faith in you To follow the example of the martyrs in heaven and with great diligence and persistence come to you with proper focus on the kingdom, honoring you and praising you and being ready to wait for a small time, for a little while, because you will be faithful. You will bring all things into subjection. And we thank you and we praise you. Give them faith. Give them courage for the sake of Christ. Amen.